we uh, are in one of my favorite areas of all the Bible, which is Luke 14 and 15, and we're going to read Luke 15 today, and we're just going to read the whole thing, actually. Um, You've heard the story before, but I invite you to hear it with fresh ears. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Celebrate with me, because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Or what woman, if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on. The servant replied, Your brother has arrived, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he received his son back safe and sound. And the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. He answered his father, Look, I've served you all these years, and I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. 
And his father said, son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me and please pray for me. Lord, I thank you for this time when we can come together and open ourselves. Open our hearts. Let down our defenses. We can know that we are safe in this safe place, this sanctuary. That here we look to you. And you want so much for us. So much life. So much goodness. Help us to receive what it is you have for us this day. Speak through me in spite of me. Help us to hear you in spite of ourselves. And may all that is said and heard be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Lord, you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be a little closer to you all. Yes, we are in Easter. You know that? We're still in Easter. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. That's what you're, that's what, never mind. We live in a time of resurrection, and that's what Easter is all about, is telling this story and this reality, and we can never hear it enough, in my opinion. Um, far too often we assume resurrection is what happens later in life, but the Bible's been telling a story from the very beginning that leads up to the time of Jesus bringing in resurrection now. Story after story in the Hebrew scriptures, the struggle for God's people, Israel, as they were called, it's all about them having a change of heart toward God, a resurrected heart. Prophets referred to Israel as dry bones, alive but spiritually dead. And they struggled through how to reach this good relationship with God. They focused on the temple, they focused on the Torah. They even used their military to establish God's kingdom, but all God ever wanted was their hearts, a new heart, a resurrected heart, one that's not calloused and hard and closed. God's Messiah has come, amen, to resurrect people's lives here and now in a way that extends well beyond death because death holds no power anymore, amen? I could stop there, but I'm not. We are going to keep going. People were responding to Jesus then, and people respond to Jesus now, but the people that were responding in Jesus' day were not the people that the religious leaders had in mind, which is kind of the focus of what we're all about, the opening verses. The tax collectors and sinners were there, and the Pharisees and Bible experts grumbled because he welcomed them and ate with them. Now, you got to understand the time of the writing of Luke's gospel came a few decades later, and in that day, there was also this kind of struggle with people that they didn't expect receiving and responding to Jesus, and we call them Gentiles. Anybody here a Gentile? If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. (laughs) And all along, the story's been for God's people, Israel, but all of a sudden, 
Israel became a spiritual matter. And if you have the faith of Abraham, you're now part of Israel. How many here are part of Israel? We're Israel. Are we Gentile Israelis or Israeli Gentile? I don't know. We're Israel. But at the time of Luke's writing, it was challenging a lot of what they expected. Jesus was Jewish, if you didn't know. Jewish rabbi. And they, they were all Jewish, the disciples. And the story of Jesus and what was happening was extending beyond the synagogue, which led to questions. How do people not of the law, Gentiles, how do they follow God's law or should they? Are we really supposed to rethink what the scripture says in light of what God is doing? That's, a lot of Paul's letters are dealing with that question. What does this mean? And the new converts, if we read in Romans, are beginning to think that God's done with the old Israel and it's all about the new Israel. So out with the old and with the new. And Paul says, no, no, you need each other. I know they've been a part of this story a lot longer than you have. Maybe you're, you're the younger sibling of this much older group of people, but you're all supposed to be here. And so we have Luke's situation of these parables in the middle of the gospel and grumbling is happening. We can understand. And you understand that when Jesus welcomes sinners, that's one thing, but eating with them is something entirely different. Table etiquette of the day was when you sat at the table with somebody, you shared honor or shame with them. So you, you were really careful about who you invited to your table. Maybe we do that now. Maybe we don't invite somebody to the table anymore. Or maybe we put the kids at the smaller table in the other room, right? That's a joke. We love our kids. But to sit across the table meant you are accepting the person fully. And lots of people were accepting Jesus fully, and Jesus was all too happy to sit and eat and drink with them. In their cultural setting, the idea is that the Father determines the rules of the house. And if you're of God's house, which is where the idea of God, a Father, comes from, then you follow God's rules, and you be good boys and girls. And to eat with someone is to associate them with you and you with them. And you can go to chapter 14 in Luke and read all about more of this table etiquette stuff. It's really fascinating. But we find that Jesus, the prophet of God, God's son, welcomes sinners and tax collectors and greets them with hospitality and love and eats with them at the table. He shares honor with them and he receives their honor as well. And to the Pharisees and Bible experts, they, these people have no honor, only shame. And how dare Jesus, as a prophet of God, a, a holy man, share a table? I can understand this in the cultural setting. This was taboo. But Jesus seems to shirk the cultural etiquette and receives them as honorable even. Those who have lived their life scrupulously by the rules are angry. They are the ones who have devoted their entire life to follow the rules. They are the ones who should be receiving honor, so they grumble. So Jesus tells three stories in response to their grumbling. The focus of the story is the appropriateness and the necessity for celebrating when something lost is found. He tells these stories to the crowds following him, which contains sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and Bible experts. And they're listening to the same story, and, and I wonder how they heard it. They can all relate to the first two stories pretty easily. Pretty simple stories. Someone loses something that's important to them. They look for it because, of course, you do. They find it. They call their neighbors and say, I found it. Let's celebrate 
They can all relate to the finding of one of a hundred sheep. Yes, that makes sense. That's logical. They can relate to the finding of one of ten coins. Yes, of course. You see what Jesus is doing? hundred to one, ten to one, and a father has two sons. The 1% made sense. Looking for the 10% makes sense. What about the 50%? I'm going to hold this up. The story is about the man who has two sons. The focus is on the man, just as the shepherd and the woman of the coin and the sheep. He has two sons, and the younger wants to share or wants his inheritance. What he's saying to the father is, you're as good as dead, so give me my inheritance now. I am done being in relationship with you. And the father had every right by the law to say no, but the father didn't. He divided it up, and of course, him being the younger son, he probably got a third. So a third of the land, a third of the flocks, a third of whatever the father owned now belongs to the son. And the people in the crowd listening to Jesus would be like, what? This guy seriously has the nerve to say that to his father? So the son then gathers up things and leaves. So what that means is he sold the land. He sold the flocks that weren't going with him. So now what once belonged to his father now belongs to someone else while the father's still alive. Insult to injury. And the people in the crowd would have been like, what? How dare he? They act in such a way against his, his father. He acts in such a way that's just something you don't do in their culture. And then he leaves. He goes to Gentile land. Well, but first, it says this father divided his property between them. The word is actually bios. It's our word for life. The father divided his life and gave the share to the son. The son goes off and spends it all. Notice it doesn't say how specifically he did other than he lived in loose or licentious living, which is basically just living by the appetite of each day, carefree, not thinking about tomorrow. Living as if there is no tomorrow is a, another way to say it. He loses everything. A famine hits. One of the most overlooked parts of the story. How does the famine fit in here? We'll talk about that another day. And the son has to take a job feeding pigs. In the Jewish culture, pigs were the most disgusting animals. We love them, right? Bacon. The son has to take a job feeding pigs. Not only that, but he looks at what they're eating and he wants to eat with them. He wants to share the table with pigs. And then the scripture says he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. What's that look like? What do you picture? A light bulb? Right? Light bulb. Somebody said in first service, he woke up. All of a sudden, yeah, the light bulb beeped. He woke up and he realizes that he had rejected the father's way in the father's house. He realized that his father, who was probably strict, since the first thing he wanted to do was live very loosely, his father was probably strict, but he realized, you know, I'm, I'm out here craving that. And even my father's hired hands better than I do. So he repents in his heart and he practices a speech. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he knows that because he killed the relationship. And will you hire me as a hired hand? That's what he wants to do. And then it says, really interesting thing. He got up and set off. I know, seems boring, right? 
The word for got up is the same word for resurrection. Anastas. You could translate it with the same integrity. He came to life and set off. So remember, the focus of the story is not the son, it's the father. Like the shepherd and the woman, who both logically have been looking for what was lost, here we find the father has his eyes set to the horizon because as soon as the son appears on it, the father sees him and has compassion. He's been looking for his son ever since his son went missing. And while he sees him, he finds compassion, he feels for the son because what he knows is that that son is going to have to walk the long distance to his father, which means he's going to walk by the neighbors or maybe through the town where all these people know the things that that son did to the father, the shame of it, and they're going to treat him like he may deserve to be treated, as he expects to be treated, but he's going to walk none the same. But the father runs to him where he is. Have you ever seen a grown man run? It's not very elegant. Just say it nicely. I mean, maybe, maybe women too, right? But grown people don't run. And yet the father runs. He runs, forsakes his own honor for himself, and runs to wrap his arms around the sun, which is a sign of receiving and welcoming. And he gives him a kiss, which is a sign of forgiveness in their culture. The son is yet to utter a word, and the father has run to him, hugged him, kissed him, received him, and forgiven him, publicly in full view of everyone, as if to make a point about how the father sees the son. The son then starts into his practice speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. And before he can say the next line, his father interrupts him and says, get him a robe, get him sandals, get him a ring. Kill the fattened calf. My son has resurrected. He was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. His son's return was all the father ever needed, apparently. And just like the finding of the sheep and the coin were cause for celebration, the finding of the son who had come back to life was cause for celebration. Now the crowd around Jesus might at this point began to look at each other, the sinner to the Pharisee, the Pharisee to the sinner, and think, okay, I think I understand you a little more, and I think I understand you a little more, because I didn't think the son deserved this, but now I'm starting to realize who the son is in this story. And the Pharisee thinking, I hadn't considered the full story of maybe the sons and daughters that are returning. Maybe. Maybe I dream. The Pharisees might have had a different perspective. But let's visit the Pharisees' part in the story, shall we? Now, the other son, remember he had two, the older son, he was lost too. He hears about what's happened. He refuses to join in the celebration. And I picture my three-year-old daughter in her most beautiful way of going, no. Is that a pretty good impression? Yeah. I picture the, the son. No. I'm not going in that party. And then he addresses his father with some incredible disrespect. He doesn't say father like the younger son did. And before he even does that, let's just consider the fact that he's out there saying no. And the father again, like he ran to the younger son, comes out to the older son and begs him to come in. And the son says, listen, for all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your rules. Yet you never even offered me a chance to celebrate, not even a goat. Goats have no meat. So he's calling his father stingy. 
He doesn't see himself as a son. He sees himself as a slave for his father. He thinks that his actions have made him worthy of more than he's received. The younger son's actions led him to think he was worthy of less than he was going to receive. The father has different perspectives of both children the whole time. He says to the older son in these words, hear these words. These are such beautiful words. He says, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Which is literally true. Because the younger son already got his inheritance, which means everything else will belong to the older son. Maybe he could have just asked for a celebration. Maybe he considers the fattened calf his. Maybe he's worried that this son, notice he doesn't call him his brother, he says, this son of yours. Maybe he's worried that he's going to receive more inheritance out of his cut. We don't know, but he refuses to understand The older son refuses to understand that he is a son simply because he is a son. He refuses to accept that the younger son is a son simply because he's a son. And he won't see him as a brother either. He refuses a life of resurrection in his father's house while everyone else celebrates. And the father once again tells how the celebration is not only appropriate, it is necessary. We must celebrate because resurrection calls for rejoicing. Amen? And the story ends. No resolution. (sighs) Jesus, just give us the answer, right? I picture the house that evening. Picture with me. This is is my creation. The younger son is there. Maybe he's even dancing. Maybe they finally got him to dance. Perhaps he's wondering, can I fully accept the identity I've been given by my father or do I still see myself as not worthy? Maybe I've always had the identity that I'm a son. I just lost sight of it. Has he always been a son? Dancing there, wrestling with which identity he will accept. One of sonship or of hired hand. The older son, maybe he's there too. Maybe, maybe his father got him to come in. And maybe he's wondering if he can accept his own identity. Am I a slave or am I a son? Has he really always been with the father? Has everything of the father always been his? maybe he hasn't been a slave this entire time dancing there wrestling with his identity can he really accept it I wonder can they only come to understand their identity when they recognize one another's will it take the older son welcoming his younger brother for the younger brother to feel actually accepted to be a son again Will it take the older brother's change of heart to truly become a son himself? It's interesting when the story doesn't end because that means we're supposed to end it. So who do you identify with in the story? The father is obviously God. God's always seeking full relationship with all of his children. Amen? God is always looking to the horizon, waiting and seeking and wanting nothing more than to embrace you as a daughter or a son. All of you, you, me, them. Maybe it takes us truly accepting the sonship and the daughtership, those are my made-up words, of others to accept our own. Maybe when we embrace our sister and brother, we actually enter into the celebration ourselves. How will your story end? 
Maybe today you've been refusing to live in relationship with Jesus. Maybe you prefer an alternative way. Maybe you're in need of a resurrected relationship to wake up, to get up and return. God is always seeking you and looking for you. Or maybe you've refused to acknowledge that those who God is receiving, maybe you refuse to acknowledge they are your sister and brother. Maybe you still think that it's actions that determine your identity with God. Maybe you don't realize that God is always with you. And everything God has is already yours. Maybe you're in need of a resurrected relationship to wake up, to get up, and join in the celebration. God is always waiting for you to help you live into the fullness of resurrected life here and now. How will your story answer? I pray earnestly that it ends with the full reception of sonship and daughtership, and that it ends with full sisterhood and brotherhood, that we might welcome each other simultaneously welcoming Jesus and the work of resurrection occurring all around us. How will your story end? Mm -hmm.